because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Hey everyone, this is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour. And this week I'm doing a best of Power Hour, as in I'm not doing a new episode this week. Uh, The main reason I'm not doing a new episode is I wasn't sure whether I would be able to do one. I got quite sick last week. Not not COVID, I'm vaccinated, but it was a pretty bad cold slash flu. Um, interestingly, a, a good friend of mine, Brian Amaridge, uh, had predicted this because I was telling him that I had worked something like 25 long days straight, uh, finishing up the latest version of Fossil Future. And he said, you know, you're going to get sick right after this. And I don't know whether it was causal, but that's exactly what happened. Fortunately, I'm a lot better now. So next week, we'll be back with another great guest. But this week is going to be a best of. Uh, For this week's best of, I picked one of my all-time favorite episodes. It was actually an episode that I did. It was the third episode ever of Power Hour. It was on Earth Day of 2011. Now, maybe it would be more timely to have done it Earth Day uh, 2021. Uh, but I had other things I wanted to do that episode. And the reason I'm sharing it and why it comes to mind is because the guest uh, philosopher Ankar Gatte, who's been on the show several other times on, on other topics and related topics, you know, he, I was working with him at the time at the Ayn Rand Institute where he was uh, a major mentor of mine. And he, he really shaped my thinking on energy and the associated environmental issues. But maybe above all on the day we did that podcast. I remember going into that podcast, planning on doing a thing that was kind of usual for me at the time, which was talking about how the modern environmental movement is anti-industry, how it doesn't truly value human life, how it makes many false predictions, uh, usually involving a lot of distortions of of science. And I certainly believe all those things, but the perspective, it it had a lot of an element of, okay, they claim the earth is going to be destroyed and they're wrong. And here's some of the reasons why they're wrong. But the point he made, and it was right before we started, or I think as we were planning maybe earlier that, that day, he said like, okay, instead of doing that, let's take a positive approach. Let's talk about how, from a human perspective, we're making the earth better. So it's not just a, we're not making the earth unlivable. It's to put it the way I would put it now is we make the earth unnaturally livable. And we can, and again, this is my current way of thinking of it. Not exactly what he said at the time, but what I got from it is that, you know, if you look at the earth as a human environment, as a place that we want to be maximally conducive to human flourishing, we've made it better and better. And above all, using fossil-fueled machines that make the planet an unnaturally nourishing place because the machines allow us to produce huge amounts of high-quality food in very small amounts of time versus the huge amount of time it would take to acquire pretty bad food without all the machines uh, producing it for us. And then in terms of safety, you know how much safer the planet is because we we can use machines to produce all these different kinds of protections against climate, including uh, against uh, nature, including climate. Um, you know, without all these machines, we would be subject to all the uh, massive natural dangers that we wouldn't be able to cope with. And just really gave me this perspective of, yeah, we make the earth a better place. So it's not just we're not destroying the earth in the process of pursuing our lives, but no, we're making from the perspective of human life, human flourishing, we're making it a better place. And that, as you can probably guess, if you're familiar with my work, has shaped my thinking ever since. So as I've been finishing up Fossil Future, I've been thinking of that, particularly because I've had the fortune and the pleasure of working with Ankar and consulting him a bunch on this book, which I didn't do directly for the moral case for fossil fuels. His, our, our conversations and our interactions had informed that. But for this, for the new book on fossil fuels, I, I asked him if he would uh, help me think through some things and he, he was willing to help. And so I think that has dramatic, I know it's dramatically improved my thinking and I think it's contributed hugely to the quality of uh, fossil futures. So I, I, I've become particularly nostalgic about this original interview. So I hope you enjoyed that. I'm not going to do a wrap up at the end of this show. So I will, you'll hear whatever wrap up I did back in 2011. So I'll just do the usual wrap up, which is that if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, 
you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com uh, to give you the usual kinds of uh, recommendations make sure you go to alexepsteinlist.com to sign up for my mailing list go to energytalkingpoints.com specifically for talking points as well as also for talking points twitter.com slash alexepstein as a, a as i'm talking about this a couple hours ago i posted an interesting thread on Twitter about energy planning and about government energy plans with some examples of how detached from reality th these things are, as well as explaining why it's just an inherently uh, invalid thing for some you know, handful of academics or politicians to claim that they have some optimal plan for the, the future of energy that can replace what has been achieved by millions of free people collaborating and uh, competing. So that's something that I just posted on Twitter, but always posting new talking points on Twitter. And then eventually they end up at energytalkingpoints.com. Also, if you want to support our research and development and promotional efforts at the Center for Industrial Progress, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. I'm recording this on Wednesday, May 12th. This Sunday, we're having our latest accelerator call where you can come and ask me questions about any issue. And I'll be giving a bunch of updates about the projects I'm working on, how they're going, and where we're headed in the future, including a big update on fossil future. So if that interests you, or more importantly, if you're just interested in accelerating the influence of good ideas about energy, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. All right, that is it for this week. Hope you enjoy this best of episode, and I will be back next week with a whole new episode. Power hour. Power hour. Coal, wind power, nuclear power, natural gas, solar power, ethanol, oil. Power hour. The show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no vagueness, just in depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein, resident fellow at the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights. Welcome to Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts discuss today's top energy issues. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Now, this is our April show, and one of the big events in April, as far as energy goes, is Earth Day. Earth Day is the annual ritual where environmentalists tell us to reflect on how much we're harming our environment, especially through our use of massive amounts of energy and they tell us we should resolve to do better. The prominence of Earth Day is a sign of the prominence of the movement of environmentalism, also known as the Green Movement. When it comes to energy policy over the last 50 years, there is no more influential group than the Green Movement or environmentalist movement. If you study the policy debates over oil and natural gas drilling, coal mining, the construction of nuclear power plants, the building of hydroelectric dams, all of these are heavily impacted by environmentalism, and the impact is invariably to slow them down. The biggest issue of all these days is the environmentalist call to practically ban all fossil fuels over the next couple decades in the name of shrinking our carbon footprint and stopping global warming. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that you can't really understand the energy landscape today unless you understand the environmentalist movement that shapes so much of it. It has become so pervasive that many people accept its ideas without even realizing it or without even thinking them over. As we'll see in the upcoming interview, I think it's completely distorted people's thinking on issues like uh, the recent nuclear issues in Japan. So this episode of Power Hour is going to focus on the ideas of the green movement, the ideas that are shaping energy policy and may well have shaped your own thinking. And to help us untangle what it really means to go green, I'm bringing in a philosopher my Ayn Rand Center colleague, Dr. Ankar Gatte, who has been studying environmentalism for a long time and understands it as well as anyone I've ever met. Dr. Gatte is a master of getting people to question their assumptions, and I hope that today's show will make you question the way you think about our environment and of whether the green movement is a force for making it better or a force for making it worse. And with that, we'll be back with Dr. Ankar Gatte after the break. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues. Now, on Earth Day, we're told we should take some time to think about what our impact is on our environment. 
but notice that the people telling us to do this are always assuming that our impact is bad. They're saying that we're destroying our planet. Well, my guest today is going to question that assumption. In fact, he's going to question many assumptions that we have about the relationship between human beings and our environment. Our guest is Dr. Ankar Gatte, a philosopher, an expert at questioning assumptions, and a colleague of mine at the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights. Dr. Gatte, or Ankar, as I know you, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Alan. So, are we destroying the planet? What, what is the real impact of human beings on our environment? What are you going to think about this Earth Day? Yeah, I mean, as you said, Earth Day is supposed to be a time to reflect on human beings' impact on the Earth. And what I think one should think about on Earth Day is you should, it's, a, it's a time to take stock, but it's a time to take stock of where human beings are in the quest for survival. And if you ask that question, and if you ask it, so in terms of a human environment, an environment in which human beings can live and can thrive, where does the Earth stand today compared to 200 years ago, 400 years ago, 600 years ago? And I think the conclusion has to be that we are better off now than at any time in human history. In terms of our material well-being, our ability to live, to have leisure time, to have interesting work, if you think just in terms of the population that the Earth can um, have on it now, I mean, it's double, triple that it's been in previous generations. And why? Because we've had science and the scientific revolution, which led to technological revolution, the whole industrial revolution, and that was made possible by the freedom that people enjoyed in Britain, in the US, and other parts of Europe. And the result that what they built with that freedom was a whole capitalist economy. And it's that conjunction of science, technology, freedom, capitalism that has brought undreamt of wealth to millions and millions and billions of people. So if we're really taking stock of how the human environment is, then it's, it's, has been, it's better than it has ever been, and it's getting better. And even in terms of, you did it in terms of diseases, pollution, filth, it's better now than it has ever been at any point in history. And if you go to the non-developed or the underdeveloped parts of the world today and ask just in terms of pollution, what is it? I lived a, almost a year in Africa, um, in Ethiopia. You would not believe the filth that exists. For instance, they don't have much of a sewer system. How do people go to the bathroom? They go on the streets. What does that smell like? Well, not too good. Um, and it's, I mean, you can multiply that. You go in the countryside, they have basically nothing. They have mud huts, maybe, and it's animal dung everywhere. I mean, it, it is the, even in terms just of pollution, not if you take out life expectancy, standard of living, we're better off now than at any point in uh, history. So it has to be a thumbs up for human beings if you're taking stock on Earth Day. Now, that's not what the environmentalists, and that's not what they want you to think on Earth Day, but I think that's what you should be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how we're talking about this concept of the human environment, and the first thing that came to mind for you was the physical surroundings that actually benefited human beings. But uh, when we hear about Earth Day, it's, we don't hear about those surroundings. They, they have a completely different conception of an environment, right? Right. And there's no such thing as the environment. An environment means the surroundings, but it means the surroundings to some living organism or some species. So we can talk about the human environment. Um, is it better off, are mosquitoes better off now than before? Well, I doubt it. And we have chemicals to get rid of them and so on. So if you talk about their environment, well, it's worse. But in terms of a human environment, it is better. When the environmentalists and the people on Earth, they start talking about the environment, what they mean is wilderness. What they mean is the world when man wasn't intruding upon it. And that's there when you put up highways and skyscrapers and power plants and hospitals, that's what they consider intruding on wilderness. So their view of the environment is the nature isolated from human beings. And so, and so their view is, well, the environment's all in jeopardy because look how human beings have spread across, across the globe. Look what we've built, look at the cities, look at all the ways in which we've interfered, trampled upon, tampered with, I mean, these are different ways that they'll put it, with nature with, or with the environment. But so the environment to them is wilderness. It's not from the point of view of really any species, but it's even worse than that, I think, because it's from the point of view of the environment is viewed as a good thing, we're trying to preserve it, is 
the world or nature untouched by human beings, which means that human beings are the ones who trample upon it. So they're seen as well, their behavior is at best suspect, and at worst, we have to get rid of it. So you're, I mean, you're talking here about environmentalism as a definite idea with a view of you know, placing value on the environment means placing value on untouched nature. I think many people would say, well, I believe in being green, but you know, that's compatible with technology and civilization. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm buying an aluminum mug instead of, or an aluminum uh, canister instead of drinking out of plastic cups and whatnot. What do you say to the kind of mainstream person who, who likes to feel good, go green, drive a hybrid? Where does he fit in this whole environmentalist scheme? Um, I think, unfortunately, he's been duped in various kinds of ways. So there is an issue of who likes pollution? So it's not hard to have a cause, well, I'm against pollution. Um, I'm against filth. I'm against dirt. Yes, we should try to get rid of those things insofar as it's compatible with increasing our standard of living. But that, then you have to look at it in a whole wide context of what industry requires, of what freedom requires, of what capitalism requires. You can't have any kind of law or policy that's aimed, that's, that's supposedly targeted at pollution, where it's limiting people's freedom, it's interfering with the capitalist system and with the market, it's trying to stop technologies and science. So there is an issue of, well, yes, we can try to get rid of pollution. But what the environmentalists did is they made all kinds of false packages. They try to package things together that don't belong together. And the environment is actually an example of that, because what they package together is once in a while they'll be talking about a human environment and say, well, look, smog in a city is not good for us. But most of the time what they're talking about is the environment, and the way I put it, is a wilderness. And it's the, the nature untouched by man. And you can see that whenever they say, well, look, there's a conflict between two things. There's a conflict between building a dam and the salmon being able to swim. There's a conflict between putting up a power plant and some bugs that well, their habitat will be interfered with. What they always side with is the salmon, the bugs, anything and everything that's non-man. Um, and it's that, this is what we have to preserve. And that's using the concept of an environment not as a human environment. Indeed, what they're trying to limit is a human environment in order to try to preserve wilderness. So people, they can respond to certain things the environment, environmentalists say. But what they don't realize is you're swallowing a really deadly package. In effect, they're packaging food with poison. And they're asking you, well, why don't you buy the whole thing and, and eat the whole thing? And what you, I think what a, a sensible American should think about is, yeah, who wants dirty rivers? Who wants smog if we have ways to get rid of it? But that is not at all the same as saying we should be against development, that we should try to limit our footprint on the earth, which is one of the imageries. Uh, that the, the images that the environmentalists use. All that means we should try to limit our standard of living. Why? So that the earth is untouched by human hands. And that is non, a nonsense, really, and deadly nonsense. I mean, you mentioned the deadliness of you know, su supporting, uh, swallowing a deadly idea, and that's a pretty strong claim. But I, I think it's really true because we're talking here about people might say, oh, I just, you know, I just buy this and that. What's the big deal? But how does this impact their support for policies? Because we see environmentalist policies about global warming and anti-development growing all over the place and getting mainstream support, even though the mainstream people might not think they're against development. Right. And it's, I mean, if you think how hard it is to build anything in the U.S. today, power plants, oil rigs, nuclear power plants, airports, even something like a shopping center, anytime it's a noticeable development, People think, well, no, and it's a whole phenomenon of not in my backyard. Someone else get this thing. Um, and it's, and it's, we don't have these large-scale construction projects anywhere as we used to in the U.S. And one of the things when people are worried about, well, is Asia outstripping America and so on, one of the things people notice is, well, they build, and they build a lot more than what we build. And it's the, I think the basic reason is we have a strong environmental movement and they don't, don't have it to this extent. They certainly have environmental influences, but it has not this idea that it's a real value to preserve wilderness has not penetrated as much into those cultures as it has into ours. And so people can try to pretend, well, this is combat compatible 
with a real advanced industrial civilization, but it's not. And every particular project where there's a choice between, well, are we going to have more energy, more power? Are we going to have uh, better airports, less congestion on the highways? These require building. Every time you get a particular project, it's, no, well, of course we can't do this. And what that amounts to when you sum up all these projects that have been stopped is a dramatic decrease in our standard of living. How would you assess the whole global warming movement in this context? Because you mentioned the packaging of two things. And, and one, there's this idea of it's, it's somehow wrong for man to change the climate. But then there's also this idea, well, if we do change the climate in any way, Mother Nature is really going to wreak havoc on our lives. And thus, they can justify things like 80% caps on fossil fuels in the name of somehow benefiting humans, even though those fossil fuels are the predominant source of energy. How do you make sense of that whole campaign? Well, I think to make sense of the global warming campaign, you really have to see it in a broad context of what this movement is and what the environmental movement is and where it came from. Um, and it, many people have said this, and Ayn Rand said this as well, and I, I think it, it's true and it's important to think about the issue in these terms. The environmental movement, it's really coming into full flower occurred after the fall of socialism, communism. And it's really, it's the socialist and communist finding a new cause. And there's some differences between now they're champion of the environment, but there's real similarities to what they used to believe before. And it's important to see those similarities to get what a phenomenon like global warming is. So the communist and socialist used to say that capitalism has within it the seeds of its own destruction. Um, so somehow it's not sustainable, even though we see progress all around us and progress decade after decade, somehow it's going to come to a stop and it's inherent contradictions in capitalism. This is the whole Marxist line. And it, but what it was going to be supplanted and surpassed by socialism, communist planning, you would have a whole bunch uh, I mean, a whole bunch means 50, 60 people in the Politburo who will tell the, how to run the whole economy and we're going to have prosperity for all. This was the whole vision. So it's a made-up goal of us. Somehow at the end of the road, we're going to have this great prosperity. Capitalism is, destroys itself, but that's okay because we're going to have something even better. Then you had, in effect, all the experiments with socialism coming. It's a little uh, euphemism to put them ex as experiments. All the destruction wreaked by uh, communism and socialism leading up to the world wars and in the aftermath of the world wars. And it became impossible for anybody to still believe and take seriously the idea that, well, capitalism is going to destroy itself, but it doesn't matter because socialism and communism are more productive. They lead to a higher standard of living. They're the true scientific approach to an economy. I mean, that was shown in country after country to be a complete fraud. So they were faced with a choice. Look, we're all wrong. Everything we've been saying is wrong. What do you say, OK, well, we really have to question our ideas, or do you give up just the idea that we can have progress, and we're going to maintain, well, capitalism is self-destructive, but nothing much is going to happen after that. It's, but of course, we know it's self-destructive. And the environmentalists are that. They have this same idea that capitalism has to be destructive and it's inherently contradictory and it's going to lead to tragedy. But there's nothing to replace it. Um, so the, the global warming is the kind of story about how industrial civilization is going to destroy itself. Oh yeah, you think you have prosperity now and yes, the standard of living has gone up and so on. But that in a way is not going to continue. Um, and it, why? Because we're releasing uh, gases and so on that are going to increase the temperature and it's going to destroy us all. And it's a kind of doomsday scenario. And it's even worse, I think, than the Marxist kind of view of capitalism. That was pretty bogus, that capitalism has within it the seeds of its own destruction. This is even worse in terms of a doomsday scenario. Because even if it were true, and I think there's a lot of reasons to question the science behind global warming. And one of the reasons, uh, one of the basic reasons is because the goal that the environmentalists are after, if it really is right, that what they're after is wilderness and what they want to return the earth to wilderness. If that's their goal, you don't need science to achieve that kind of goal. All you need to just is destroy capitalism, industrial civilization, and science. So if that's your goal, to say that you're interested then in science is pretty dubious. And so 
that, that it, this is a whole scientific phenomenon. That I think there are real reasons to question it because of the basic goal. But even if it were true that global warming is bringing us an increase in temperature and there's going to be climate changes and disruption and so on, how do you cope with a climate and a climate that is inhospitable to man in various ways? You cope with it by having ma ability to produce massive amounts of energy such that you can heat homes if it's really cold, you can have air conditioning, you can irrigate the desert, you can protect yourself from the elements. I mean, this is part of one of the reasons why in an advanced economy, standards of living and life expectancy goes up because we have the ability to protect ourselves and isolate ourselves from the environment in, in the sense of wilderness nature. We're not subject and we're not, it's not such a precarious existence. So if it were true that industrial civilization is leading to where we're going to have lots of disruptions in our climate, it's going to be quite different in the next 50 years to what it's been in the previous 50, that's all the more reason to say, well, we need to double down and get even more energy such that we can cope with any of these kinds of problems. And you cannot cope with this kind of thing um, without massive amounts of capital and energy. And you can see when you get earthquakes and tsunamis in areas where they don't have a built-up infrastructure. The devastation and the ability to recuperate from the devastation is so much worse than it is in an advanced economy. So um, going back to the parallel between, or the relationship between environmentalism and the left and thus its relationship uh, to socialism, how do you see the whole green energy thing fitting into that? Because it, it very much has an element of central planning, where Al Gore has this quote where he says, I know of renewable sources of energy that can produce the equivalent of $1 gallon of gasoline, but it doesn't go do it. No one starts a company. And in fact, actual tests on the market show that these energies fail dramatically, and yet they keep saying, oh, no, you know, the market is distorted. It's against us. We'll figure out a way to do it. I just read a paper from this Stanford guy who says he can power the whole world using so-called renewable energy uh -huh. in 20 years. How, it seems like they're drawing a lot from that central planning socialist mindset. Yeah, they're drawing a lot from that mindset, and they're drawing a lot from the whole mechanics of how it works. So what communism and the socialist uh, used to promise is that, well, down the road, we're going to have this great economy. It's going to be centrally planned. Indeed, the state, will, even at a point, will wither away. And when you start to ask, well, how is this going to happen? And how does this work? And how can 50 people plan an economy? So they have no answers. And, it, and they were cavalier in, oh, well, that, that's going to happen. What's, what's, what we're really focused on, and what Marx, for instance, is focused on, is this is what's wrong with capitalism, and this is why I hate capitalism. How is his nirvana going to work? You don't really get that in Marx's writing, and that was true of the whole socialist communist movement. And there's something similar in the green energy. They have all this hand-waving to, oh, well, we can live without oil, and we can live without nuclear power, and somehow the wind is going to power everything. And when you ask, start asking for the specifics of it, oh, well, we'll work that out when that uh, happens along. What they're really interested in is curtailing oil, the use of oil, the use of coal, the use of nuclear energy. Whenever we discover um, a form of energy that we can really exploit and, you, and produce a massive amount of energy, that's what they say, oh, no, well, that's trampling on nature. This is tampering with um, wilderness. We shouldn't be doing this. We need some kind of form that we do somehow. It doesn't, you're not interfering with wilderness, but we still have a massive amounts of power and so on. And yeah, that would be easy down the road, and we just need some government grants, and now it will work itself out. Their real target is what they want to stop, and it was the same with the socialists and communists. Their real target and their real enemy was capitalism, and we want to destroy this. How, what are we going to have as, a, as an alternative to this? They make promises, but they cannot give any real specification for how it works, and I think green energy is like that. And the first question one should ask is, how does this work? And how are we going to really make do if what you're saying is we need to eliminate 50%, 60% of carbon emissions? Well, that means a drastic uh, curtailment of our use of oil and fossil fuels. How is that really going to work? Um, and I think there's no answer to that question. Yeah, I think the, the case of nuclear is particularly instructive here because that's a source of, it's in the news lately, so we should talk about it anyway, but it's a source of power that doesn't emit CO2 emissions. That in the 70s, according to many reports, was uh, producing power more cheaply than coal. 
and yet the environmentalists oppose it. So what is it about their ideas that make them oppose something that doesn't emit CO2? It's, it, I mean, this is another instance, I think, in which you can see, and you should really think, yeah, so what is their goal? We found a, a, a source of power that on their terms they should have viewed as clean. Why didn't they become the greatest champions of nuclear power? And if you think of it as, well, what they're really concerned about is pollution and the gases and so on, they don't want this in the atmosphere. If you think, well, that's their goal, then their reaction to nuclear power and the kind of vehemence with which they targeted uh, nuclear power, it doesn't make any sense. But if you then think, well, maybe I'm wrong about what their goal is, and if their goal is wilderness, and if their goal is, well, we, man should not be interfering with wild nature, we should leave well enough alone, then it makes sense because nuclear power represents man taking control of his environment and building a human environment. It's an instance of where we create a massive amount of power. And then we use it to build roads, to run hospitals, to run businesses, to build cities. We use it to transform the earth into a human place. Um, and if that's what they oppose, then of course, if we found a, a, another source of energy that will enable us to do this and do this more cheaply, that's a problem for them. And it's a complete red herring that, well, does it emit fossil fuels or not? Is it dirty or clean? That's not actually what they're concerned with. And well, and this, they'll just make up another type of emission. They'll say, well, no, we, radiation is bad to emit too. You can't be radioactive now. You can't emit carbon. You can't be radioactive. Yeah, and I think if you read actually about nuclear power and nuclear power plants, what you discover is that it's complete scaremongering. It's made up things. They rely on, well, there's the word nuclear, nuclear bomb, and there's the word nuclear, nuclear power. So they must be essentially the same thing. And they're not. I mean, it's not. you don't have to worry about a power plant going off like a nuclear bomb. If you actually read the literature about it, what you discover is it's all scaremongering. And that, too, should be evidence for questioning, is this a scientific movement or not? Or are they using science and appeals to science because everybody respects science. So if they pitch it as, well, no, this is a scientific issue that it emits radiation and it's a huge danger and we can't have this. If they pitch it as, well, who's going to question science? So, and this again, there's a parallel to the communists and the socialists. Marx and Engels, in opposition to other, what they would call the utopian socialists, would say, our brand of socialism is scientific. And it was to get, well, Oh, well, it's scientific. Who can argue with that? Um, and it's the similar. You see this in other movements. Religion, for instance. Creationism. Well, nobody buys that the world was made by God in seven days and so on. That doesn't, I mean, you might have that as a myth and take it on faith, but you can't allow that into the realm of science. Well, what about scientific creationism? What are you going to argue about that? And then they have a whole, but it's all, when you actually look at it, it's all just a, a mystical view dressed up with the language of science because it makes it more palatable and they want people to accept it. So who's questioned science? So the, anytime you put the stamp science on it, it's, oh yeah, okay, that's subjective. But you really have to look at what the fundamental goal is. And it's to say socialism does not become scientific because they stamp the label science on it. Yeah, and I think the recent uh, outcry in response to the Japanese nuclear plants, I think is a perfect illustration of this whole uh, mentality. What was your reaction when you saw the environmentalists responding to that? Yeah, I mean, I thought it, it was, again, they're seizing on this as an opportunity for scaremongering to make people suspicious of nuclear power. See, this is what, if we had nuclear power and more nuclear power in the U.S., because there are actually now at least preliminary proposals. Yeah, like would, for one. Yeah, <laughs> a building again. I mean, I think it's 30 years or more since we've built nuclear power plants. Um, so they saw this as, well, here's an opportunity to scare people again. But I think you, the actual lesson is the reverse, that look at what this plant, the damage it sustained, and still what the death toll is, which is uh, zero, basically. Um, it's, you had an earthquake of 9.0 followed by a tsunami that hit the plant. And the death toll is what it is. And they use this as evidence that nuclear power is not safe. Um, and the lesson should be exactly the reverse. If this was oil rigs, if this was a dam that was hit by an earthquake and then a tsunami, I mean, who knows what the devastation would have been. So if you put together these two points, that we need massive amounts of energy, 
And then nuclear energy seems to be, comparatively speaking, the safest form of energy. One should be a champion of nuclear power and take this kind of episode as evidence for, yeah, this is the reason we want nuclear power, not this is the reason that we shouldn't have it. Mm -hmm. So going back to our original question, our original project of understanding what is the environmentalist view of the environment, uh, let's let's do a contrast. What is the proper view that we should have of the environment? And can you talk about uh, Ayn Rand? And actually, it strikes me that Atlas Shrugged, her book, which was written in 1957, before the rise of the modern environmentalist movement, that is actually the best book I know of in terms of really giving the opposite pro-industrial viewpoint to uh, counter environmentalism. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. There's been no greater champion of industry, of technology, of capitalism, and of its source, which is you need political freedom and you need the reasoning mind. The reasoning mind is the source of science, the source of technology. It's what builds businesses. So the Atlas Shrugged is what she champions is all the people who create a human environment. She champions the scientists, the inventors, the people who create new technologies, the businessmen who bring those technologies to the masses, the people who run railroads and build steel mills. These are the people who take wilderness. And if you think just of the history of the US, when the Europeans came here, it was basically wilderness that could support a few tribes in the most meager conditions, such a low standard of living. It was a wilderness. How did we transform it into a human environment? Well, it's as a result of the Industrial Revolution and everything that was behind that, which is the scientific and technological issues of being able to get the knowledge, the capital, and having the freedom then to put one's knowledge and one's wealth and one's money to work to build a human environment, which is to say the Americans tamed a continent. There's a real meaning to that. They took wilderness and they build a place now that everybody wants to come because if human life is your standard and human well-being, so just the quantity and quality of life, where would you want to live if not the U.S.? And it's because we transformed wilderness. And, and Atlas Shrugged is about the people who see their mission and their purpose in life as building a life and which means building the conditions in which life is possible. So, I mean, when you say it like that, and I mean, obviously I agree with this viewpoint, but I think even other people hearing that and hearing what the environmentalist viewpoint amounts to when we really look at it in stark terms and unpackage the, the trimmings that it doesn't really, isn't really concerned about, we ask why is environmentalism so popular? We see it everywhere, it's dominant. What, it, what is it about our culture that made it so susceptible to environmentalism? And what, and what is it about our culture that makes it difficult for Ayn Rand's perspective where she views industrialization as heroic? Uh, why is it so difficult for that to take hold? Um, I, think, I, I think there's a variety of reasons, but the, one of the central reasons is that people are suspicious of profit, of progress, of wealth, of money, um, of happiness, and they've been taught to be suspicious of these things, that morally, this is not what you're supposed to be doing, this is not what life is about. So yes, in your life as a businessman or something, you build a company, you're interested in making money, but when you reflect on, well, what should I be doing with my life? It is, really, should it be this? What about the people who are suffering? What about, isn't morality about sacrifice? And it's that, and everybody holds this view, or almost everybody holds this view to some extent, that what morality is about is giving up, renouncing, sacrificing. Um, and they feel guilty that they don't do this. And environmentalists, as other movements, they play upon that. So they say, and this, this is the real meaning of Earth Day. What are we supposed to reflect on? We're supposed to reflect on what we're doing so badly. We're supposed to reflect on, I don't recycle enough, I don't walk to work enough, even though it's freezing outside or rain, I should still, why am I driving this car? Why do I care so much about me? I should be caring about the environment. So it's, it's a time to feel guilt. I mean, that's basically what Earth Day is. It's to think of, I don't turn off the lights enough when I leave the room. It's to think all what you're doing wrong. And the, so the plausibility, or the, one of the attractions of environmentalism is to say, look, we're asking you to sacrifice. We're asking you to do something good. Don't be so concerned with your selfish interest, your happiness, your profits. 
<clears throat> shouldn't you be sacrificing some time? And that's how people, and in particular Americans, in effect, treat environmentalism. It's, yeah, I guess I should recycle. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have three cars and this big a car, so I'll scale back a little bit. And it's, they feel good because it's, yeah, that's a sacrifice. I would like to have a bigger house, but maybe I shouldn't. Or maybe one of our cars should be a hybrid. Yeah, it's more expensive, but what, what are you going to do? You have to help the environment. So it gives people a cause of saying, yeah, not all bad. Um, and what has to be challenged then to challenge this kind of view is the whole view that why is life not about pursuing your happiness? Why isn't it about your prosperity? Why isn't it about building a life? What is good about sacrifice and renouncing? And you really have to challenge that premise. But that is a deep moral premise that people hold. And environmentalism plays upon this. But this is one of the relations between environmentalism and religion. Religion plays upon people's guilt all the time. And it's again, it holds up a goal that you have no idea how to achieve. You're supposed to reach heaven, and it's going to be great in heaven, so on. If you do the right things now, well, how, what are the right things now? Well, it's not for you to know. We'll tell you what the right things are now. And they set out a whole set of rules, and the rules are mostly negative. Don't be concerned with money. Don't be concerned with profit. Sex is bad. Don't be concerned with this world. Orient, your, orient yourself to the next. And people think, yeah, maybe I should be doing a little bit of that. So I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll do my penance and so on, and then I'll live my life after that. So it's again, yeah, I feel guilty, and here's a way to feel a little less guilty. And that environmentalists, like many religions, play upon that um, in people's mentalities. In effect. I find it interesting how people on the left who would regard themselves as often atheists and, and certainly not affected at all by religion display the most religious behavior I've ever seen with regard to things like recycling or you know, buying a hybrid car for $40,000 that has no appreciable impact on anything, and yet they derive this almost mystical satisfaction and pitiful satisfaction from performing these little acts of, of penance. It just, it's incredible to me. Yeah, and it's it's they you need some kind of goal, and this gives you the illusion of having a goal that I'm really working for something that I'm sacrificing. I'm doing my moral duty. Now it ends up being for nothing. I mean, what is the result of all these things? It's return, and this is what the environmentalists want: is returning the earth to a wilderness, which is the achievement of nothing. Um, and so it's a really corrupt view. But it's the same. The, the communists had this kind of view. That it, well, I have to think of myself as I'm working for the withering away of the state and we're going to have a communist nirvana and so on. Nobody really had any idea of how if I don't work for my selfish interests, somehow that's going to lead to prosperity for everyone. And if I just follow this economic five-year plan, it's a real economic hardship for me and my family, but somehow it's going to all work out. So it's... They need a goal, but there's no real goal here, and it's important to see that. And this is another element, incidentally, in which you can should really question if you have the premise, well, isn't environmentalism, and aren't they really scientific? Um, you, you were talking about the way adults hold it. If you look at the way they try to indoctrinate children, and it, this starts in preschool, with, with you have to recycle and you're corrupt if you don't, and so on. If it really was a scientific view, then you would think, well, look, a four-year-old doesn't have the capacity to understand any of this. It ha he has to understand the science behind it, otherwise it's completely meaningless. But that's not their view. And if you turn on any cartoon, you're flooded with environmentalist propaganda. And it's, why is it propaganda? Because it really is akin to a religion and not to science. They have a whole dogma that they're trying to, to drive into people's heads and they know, as religion knows, the earlier you start, the better, um, so, uh, which is why they target kids. But you would, if it really were a scientific movement, you would never do that. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about a couple of sort of pseudo-scientific concepts that I think are used within the movement because uh, there's this broader goal of pursuing, of not having an impact on nature, but then there's all of these fallacies, I think, about how, well, in our effort to have an impact on nature, we're really sowing the seeds of our own environmental destruction. So one of these ideas is sustainability, and namely that capitalism, the free market, is unsustainable. Yeah, and just the historic evidence what should lead one to think, okay, what does this really mean? We've had, since the Industrial Revolution, 150, 160, 170 years, 
It's been years of continuous progress. Our life has gotten better, and both, again, in terms of standard of living, life expectancy, and the number of people who can live on the earth. So in all these scores, it gets better and better and better. So what is the evidence that, well, but it's going to all come to a crashing end? One should really think, just in terms historically, of why would one ever think this? Their image of sustainability is you do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, it's really an animal's view, or the view of the way other animals survive. If you think of a bird, what does it do? In the spring, it builds a nest, it has a mate, it raises young, flies somewhere for the winter, comes back, does exactly the same thing, then flies away for the winter, and over and over, it does the same thing. And if you look at human production, and human life in those kind of terms, then it's, okay, we're drilling for oil here. Well, we're going to be able to drill in the exact same spot next year? Well, no, so it's not sustainable. But that is a joke to look at it like that. In terms of the real cause of human achievement and human prosperity, it's, it, this goes again back to Atlas Shrugged and the whole theme of Atlas Shrugged. It's the reasoning mind that leads to life and prosperity. And the reasoning mind adapts to conditions as they change. So it's if we exhaust the oil reserves in some area, we go and discover them in other. We discover a new, whole new source of power, nuclear energy. We discover new technologies. We build new things. Our production is different year after year after year after year because we're able to think, get new ideas, new productive processes, and we build. One of the things that capital, the more wealth you have, it, the easier, the more division of labor you can have, the more research you can have, and time, I mean, part of what capital gives you is it saves you time. You're not living hand to mouth. You can embark on long range research and so on. So it's, we get better and better ideas. If you look at the whole computer revolution, the cell phone revolution, we just, nobody expects in the realm of technology that we're going to be doing what we were doing five years ago now, and that five years from now it's going to look like it does now. So the whole image of sustainability is we have to be able to repeat these things over and over again, and if we can, it's not, our life isn't sustainable. It's just the wrong way of looking at the whole issue. I mean, if you look at the quote-unquote sustainable lifestyles throughout history, it's the most primitive, impoverished people who keep doing the same thing over and over and over. Right, and it's closer to an animal's life. If you think of, the, the again, the Indian tribes who were in America before the Europeans came, or even a more advanced civilization that doesn't have science, technology, freedom, and capitalism, like Egypt, for instance. It went on decades and centuries basically the same. And it's a very precarious existence. They don't have anywhere close to our lifespan and certainly standard of living. So, and it, But that is not life in an industrial civilization. One of the glories of it is it's not like that. And you can keep doing things that are new, better. Um, and it's because you're free to discover knowledge and use that knowledge. Uh, to switch to, I think, a different sort of fallacy. I think, in, I mean, environmentalism is everywhere. One one realm I get a lot from students who are studying economics is they'll they'll talk about incorporating, you know, environmental externalities. And when we think about economics, we need to factor in the negative externalities from our production of fossil fuels. Well, how would you respond to that <coughs> perspective? Um, the the idea of externalities um, is. Uh, there's a certain meaning to it, but it's it's really abused. And the, the real solution to it is the issue of rights, and particularly property rights. When you own something, you're the owner of it. And to say that you have ownership over it means within a certain specified sphere, you can do as you judge best with this piece of land, with this car, with this factory. Um, and Will this have effects on other people? Yes, but to say you have a right to this is you're free to use it, and other people, if they like or dislike how you're using it, doesn't matter. So if you use a, let's say you own your home, you paint it a certain color, your neighbor doesn't like it. Now in economics, they'll put, well, that's a negative externality, because you've changed your property and it's affected him, and he doesn't like it. It's decreased his uh, standard, or his, his, uh, happiness or however they'll put it, it decreased as utility. But you have the freedom to do that and you should be free to do that and it's not an issue, he doesn't have a say about how you use your house. And the, the whole issue of property rights 
is to try to um, prevent these conflicts by saying, you have the freedom here. No one else can tell you what to do. Um, and so, I mean, how does, how, how does that connect to the environmental thing? Because they're saying, well, you, how dare you, how dare we burn coal? I mean, where do we get off, you know, uh, violating others' right to a, a sanct, uh, you know, sacrosanct static climate? So the whole issue of property rights is in the context we need property rights in order to be able to build a life and to build a whole, in, in the end, a whole civilization. So they're in the context of what we want to be able to do is produce. And what's crucial to production is that people have property rights. Um, so something like that uh, the, the factories emit smoke and so on, that's part of the whole productive process. And to say you have a right to it is you have a certain freedom to do that. It emits a certain amount of smoke. That's a fact of life. Just as when you breathe, you emit gases. That's a fact of life. Now, you can have laws that if it reaches a certain level of um, emissions and so on, that's not part of your property, right? You don't have a right to do that. And someone then can have a claim against you. You're emitting too much smoke. But all these kinds of laws have to be in the context of what is required for industrial civilization, civilization to continue to exist. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the whole, and that, that context is, is completely absent from the discussion. I mean, in terms of just the energy field, they regard fossil fuels, the product of capitalism is dispensable, and then they regard freedom as dispensable because they have their own, you know, all these central planning schemes that, they're, that they want to uh, impose on us. Yeah, and it's, it's usually brought up in terms of negative externalities, but there is a, such a thing as positive externalities yeah. that they never take into account. And what is the most positive, what is the phenomenon that creates the most positive externalities is the person who discovers a new idea. Um, Isaac Newton discovers the laws of motion. The positive externalities that have resulted out of that so that all the positive benefits that he himself didn't reap but that other people did using the knowledge he discovered is so enormous that if you were if you were looking actually about okay capitalism and what kind of externalities does it create mm -hmm. it because it makes possible the discovery of knowledge and people are free to discover knowledge invent new things new technology then people say yeah that's a good idea i'm going to do something like that the positive externalities of that whole system um, it dwarfs any kind of problems about pollution or anything like that. So, but it's again, if you're looking at it from the perspective of human life and what are its requirements, to say that well, capitalism are one of its requirements. It's the it's the system in which man can think and produce. But that means he can discover knowledge, he can engage in science, and that has it has benefits for the person who discovers the knowledge, but it has benefits for everybody who lives in that system. Yeah, I'm just, uh, as a quick aside, I'm or actually not an aside, I'm reminded of just the whole agricultural revolution of the 20th century, which we were supposedly going to have a population bomb when we were 3.7 billion people, and now we have, what, 6.5 billion? So all those people owe their life to fossil fuels in a certain, so how do you factor that as an extra, but I never hear of that. I mean, right. where, where are the people thanking big oil for billions of lives being on the planet? Yeah, and this again, in terms of Ayn Rand really rethinking issues at a fundamental level, one of the ways she put it is, you should go thank the grimiest factory you can find, because you likely wouldn't be alive without that factory and ones like it that produced the whole industrial revolution. And then she'll go on to add, well, no, the factory doesn't have to be grimy. But in the context of the values that industrialization has brought you, it's such a minor issue that this thing emits a little bit of smog and maybe we can clean that up a little bit. It, it has to, you have to place value on industrialization because it is what has made life possible on this globe. Most of us, uh, would not be alive if without the Industrial Revolution and all the things that led to the Industrial Revolution. So wrapping up, um, I mean, we, we have obviously two stark perspectives here. One is the embrace of industrialization and the reshaping of Earth to meet man's needs, and one is the rejection of industrialization, i.e. environmentalism. What can, what can listeners do uh, to hopefully fight environmentalism? It's so pervasive, it's so massive. What, what can they do? Um, it's to not take for granted industrial civilization and all of its aspects, not take for granted science, technology, capitalism, and the freedom that all these things 
require. And whenever you see these things being attacked, and attacked in particulars, so for instance, if there's a campaign against stem cell research to limit science, if there's campaigns against nuclear power and other technologies, it's to see this, this is a real threat. Don't just brush it aside. Don't think, well, someone else will deal with these things. You should really think, no, these are tremendous values that I should value and I should defend. And the flip side then is to be really suspicious of the environmentalists and their claims. Whenever you hear proposals that amount to, um, we're going to drastically curtail either freedom, so with all this central planning, um, all these proposals that we'll, we'll hand it over to the UN and they'll decide how much emissions, all this kind of thing would, would be a tremendous loss of freedom. You should be deeply suspicious of because you should know what the value of freedom is. When you see attacks on capitalism and say, well, it's, it's capitalism that has led us to this, we need some kind of other system and so on, that should, you should be suspicious of. And when you see attacks on technology and science, all these things you should be really questioning every environmentalist proposal that requires either massive controls over the economy or requires that we just don't, we, don't, we make do without fossil fuels, so we somehow are going to make do without nuclear power. Um, all these things you should be suspicious of and ask yourself, is there really an alternative? Have they proposed an, uh, an intelligible alternative? Do they care if there's an alternative? And you have to get to the level of seeing what is their real goal here? And when you can see that their goal is what they want is wilderness. And if, when you think of how inhuman a goal that is, that it, it means that, um, I mean, to return to wilderness would mean massive deaths, massive destruction. But or it means that, well, the fact that we've gone from a population of 3 billion to 6 billion, that's a bad thing, because that means the disappearance of wilderness. It, when you think of it, that's their perspective. It's such an inhuman perspective, that you should become outraged at what they're proposing. But you, if you don't get to what their goal is and really try to think what is their goal, you will not have a proper evaluation of the environmentalists. And from the positive side of think really what are the benefits of industrial civilization? What have they brought to your own life and made possible? All right. Well, I think that's, that's a great note to end on. And I'm very grateful to Ankar for coming here and clarifying uh, so much of this stuff. Thank you, Ankar, for all you're doing and helping fight the good fight. Thanks for having me. Our Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Gatte. I think there are a lot of takeaways from this interview, and I highly recommend listening to it at least one more time. On this issue in particular, we have a guest who is challenging conventional wisdom to such a strong degree that it can take a couple of listens to really understand how different and how clarifying his perspective is. My number one takeaway from the interview is that when we embrace some cause, such as environmentalism or even some causes slogan like go green, we really need to know what the goal of that cause is. And we need to do that by, above all, looking at the actions and the core beliefs of the members of that cause, however slick their marketing is. So in the case of environmentalism, the goal, as Dr. Gatte discussed, is nature untouched by man, or as he liked to call it, wilderness. And the result of environmentalism in practice, the result of this goal in practice, is to stop development. As Dr. Gatte pointed out, all these little green pieces of legislation and bureaucracy add up, making development in this country far slower than it could be and really stunting our energy progress. And his point is that it's no accident that they add up. If you think of, quote, the environment as nature untouched by man, then the consequence of valuing the environment on that conception will be to sacrifice more and more of progress, including energy, to wilderness. But if you value not wilderness, but the human environment, you'll embrace the opposite. You'll embrace the development of nature in a way that is maximally conducive to human life. Now, one issue that didn't come up in the interview that often comes up uh, when I discuss environmentalism with people is the relationship, or in my view, the non-relationship between environmentalism and natural beauty. Environmentalists like to portray themselves as the defenders of natural beauty, and they say that if it weren't for them, the whole world would be shopping malls. Now, this is ridiculous. Natural beauty is like reduced pollution. It's something that everybody wants and likes for good reasons. People like it on their own land, and they like it in the form of large natural parks like Yellowstone. 
Now, what government policy toward parks should be is a complex issue. But is, what is very straightforward, in my mind at least, is that the current policy has very little to do with preserving nature for human enjoyment and everything to do with preserving nature from human enjoyment. And that includes energy development, preserving it from energy development. The government has nationalized literally one-third of the land and given the environmentalists huge influence over it, in addition to the huge influence they have over all private land, more or less. That influence needs to vanish. The vast majority of the nationalized land should be sold off to private individuals and they should be free to use it in the way they judge best benefits their lives. And that'll include drilling rigs, parks, and yes, shopping malls. I hope that going forward, when you think about energy issues and any other issues, you have a red flag in your mind whenever someone talks about, quote, protecting the environment. Because as Dr. Gatte said, there is no, quote, the environment. What we should care about is the human environment. And one of the things that makes it better is lots and lots and lots of power, which is why the show exists. And with that, it's time to wrap up the Power Hour. I hope you learned something. And if you did and think it's important information, please tell your friends and colleagues about it whatever way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything short of spam. As always, if you, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or love mail, you can send it to alex at alexepstein.com. And to subscribe to this podcast or to subscribe to my monthly newsletter with even more energy goodness, go to alexepstein.com, which will link you to my Facebook page, and it'll have all the links you need. Next month, we'll be back with another exciting topic and guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour is a TJ DeSantis production. Its content is intended for private use only.